This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the The Big Big Dinosaur Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast. where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett, and Sabrina is away on a business trip right now, so I'm going to be doing all the news, but she might magically show up and do the dinosaur of the day. We also want to give an especially big thank you to our patrons at the $5 level. And this month, they're Chris, Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, Scotty, and Jackson. So thank you guys so much. And if you're not a patron, but you'd like to join in our growing community, you can go to patreon.com slash inodino. This week, our dinosaur of the day is Iguanodon. We have still a ton of news to catch up on, but I think after this episode, we'll be pretty much caught up. And we have our second stop of our epic dinosaur road trip, which was at the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Alberta, Canada. And we have an interview with Cameron White, the head of gallery experience there. So jumping right into the news, there's another awesome new dinosaur from Argentina. This time it's a Carcharodontosaurid rather than all the titanosaurs that we've been seeing. The find was published in PLOS One and it was written by Sebastian Apesteguia and others. The new dinosaur was named Gualicho Xinye, and Gualicho is a Spanish word for a goddess of animals, but after Christianity, it was reinterpreted to be a demon, and it's considered to cause misfortune for local cowboys or gauchos, and so the name was chosen because there was a lot of difficulty in excavating and studying the fossil. The specific name honors Miss Akiko Shinya, who discovered the fossil and has done a lot of work at the Field Museum in Chicago. So they found a complete skull, teeth, most of the vertebrae, ribs, hips, gastralia, and parts of the legs, feet, arms, hands, and scapula. And it's really quite a remarkably complete specimen. The thing that makes it unique is that it appears to have arms that are similar to a tyrannosaur with only two fingers, and they describe the arms as being the size of a human child's arms. But many of the other parts of its body are similar to an African theropod, Deltadromius, and it has a hodgepodge of other tetanurin features thrown in the mix. It's from the late Cretaceous, probably about 93 million years old, and it was also probably about 25 feet or 7.6 meters long, and it would have weighed roughly one ton, making it a bit smaller than an average Allosaurus. So those small human childlike arms on a 25-foot dinosaur seem especially tiny, which is why they're so Tyrannosaur-like. Even though it had those small arms like a T-Rex, it was more closely related to Carcharodontosaurus, which we talked about back in episode 24. If you're not familiar with it, it's a similar size to T-Rex, but it's got a few other differences, and they're not that closely related. They're both big meat-eating theropods, but they filled different niches and Carcharodontosaurus didn't have quite the same senses that T-Rex had. It was originally discovered back in 2007, but there were lots of problems, including a truck rollover while the truck was carrying the scientists that delayed publishing until now. So I guess we're lucky that we found out about it at all. It's certainly a cool dinosaur. It's always fun to see the hodgepodges where it kind of combines features of different dinosaurs that we've seen over time. Next up, there's some new paleopathology, and I know a few of you are interested in those things. Basically, paleopathology is any kind of disease or other problem that a dinosaur was having physically. And the University of Southampton in the UK believe they have found the first ever record of a tumorous facial swelling. 
Mihai Dumbrava and others published their findings in Nature this month. The tumor was found on the jaw of a Telmatosaurus, a relatively small hadrosauroid from the late Cretaceous. It was discovered over 10 years ago in the Valley of the Dinosaurs in Transylvania, Romania, and the jaw belongs to a juvenile that was about half the size of an adult Telmatosaurus. After micro-CT scanning the jaw, they believed that it had an amyloblastoma, based on the external appearance of the growth and the internal structure, and amyloblastomas are benign growths that are known from modern mammals, including humans, as well as reptiles. They drew a reconstruction of the Talmatosaurus with its tumor, if you're interested in seeing what it looked like. It's kind of a little bit like a goiter, although it's on the jaw rather than the neck, so it looks a little bit wonky. The researchers don't think it would have caused the dinosaur much pain, especially because it's kind of small, but since it died young, it makes you wonder if the tumor may have contributed. Possibly it was a target by a predator. Apparently predators will look for an animal that's different in a herd or otherwise injured or just a little wonky. <laughs> and then they might try to target them specifically. So that could be how it ended up dying. It's hard to say. It'll be interesting to see what else they find in hadrosauroids. They mentioned in the article that hadrosauroids appear to get more of these tumors and other paleopathologies than other dinosaurs did. I wonder if that might be a little bit because we find so many more hadrosauroids than other things, but who knows. Next up, there's an article about how ornithopod dinosaur teeth evolved. It was written by Edward Strickson and others and published in Nature's Scientific Reports. So basically, early ornithopods only had about 20 teeth, while Cretaceous hadrosaurids had complex dental batteries with hundreds of teeth. And there's a period known as the Cretaceous Terrestrial Revolution, or KTR for short, which is basically the period of the mid to late Cretaceous where angiosperms, or flowering plants, showed up and displaced a lot of the cycads and ferns that were dominating all of the land before that. And there had been theories in the past that maybe hadrosaurids and ceratopsians did so well in the late Cretaceous because they took advantage of these angiosperms, whereas other dinosaurs didn't. And like we talked about before, ceratopsians and hadrosauroids were pretty much the only two groups that were doing really well in the Cretaceous. Some of the other dinosaur groups were actually doing kind of poorly. So there's that theory that this Cretaceous terrestrial revolution really set up the hadrosaurids for success. So the question these researchers were trying to answer was, did the hadrosauroids evolve the ability to take advantage of these new plants? And basically, maybe not. The researchers found four diversification points, so times when the hadrosauroids were going through big changes and you would expect there to be some driving force behind that. So for instance, if when these angiosperms showed up, all of a sudden there are a ton of new hadrosauroids, you'd think, oh, okay, they're all taking advantage of these angiosperms, so the dinosaurs are evolving in response to the new plants. But out of all four of the diversification points, none of them line up with the KTR. There was one in the middle late Jurassic, and the other three were in the Cretaceous about 90 million years ago, and none of those line up with the KTR, which started around 120 million years ago. On top of that, they maintained these same teeth for a long period of time from before the KTR until afterwards. And that seems to show that their diet wasn't changing that much. So to put it in another way, the researchers said, quote, perhaps hadrosaurids did consume some angiosperms and the uniquely high number of dental tissues in hadrosaurids could have permitted them to process several vegetation types. However, there is little evidence that hadrosaurids became angiosperm specialists. In fact, their grinding dental batteries, tooth microware, stomach contents, and copper lights indicate that they were conifer specialists, end quote. They also note that being so widespread, some hadrosaurids lived in high latitudes where there weren't many angiosperms to eat anyway. So it seems like hadrosaurids weren't super successful just because of angiosperms. It must have been something else. So in the end, we still don't really know exactly what caused this explosion in hadrosaur diversity and why they were so successful. So we'll just have to wait and see if someone comes up with a new theory. Speaking of teeth, 
We mentioned that some scientists have proposed that T. rex and other similar dinosaurs might have needed lips to protect their tooth enamel, and we got a message on Facebook from Brendan asking, what about Smilodon, which is also known as the saber-toothed tiger, although not technically a tiger. Basically, the dinosaurs with lips hypothesis comes from the fact that apparently saliva has all sorts of nice stuff in it that protects and maintains tooth enamel, and I'm not a tooth expert at all, but I did do a lot of digging into this topic to try to answer the question. So dinosaurs likely had teeth that were enamel and dentin like humans do, and not keratin or some other material that tusks are usually made out of. And if you look across the animal kingdom, animals tend to either have enamel teeth inside a mouth protected by saliva, or they have tusks or keratin or other things sticking out of their head and those things aren't susceptible to bacteria and other issues that comes with the enamel of teeth. Apparently, since crocodilians are semi-aquatic, their exposed teeth don't have the same problems while they're exposed, and they can replace their teeth up to 50 times in their life. So maybe the little bit of decay that they would get doesn't matter so much. We do know that some dinosaurs replace their teeth frequently, so maybe... If they're replacing their teeth all the time, they wouldn't have had to worry too much about tooth decay either. I don't know. But what about Smilodon? So apparently, there are a few scientists that think that they may have had jowls that covered their long canines. It actually makes a lot of sense since we know that they could open their mouth really wide, almost 120 degrees. And in order to do that, they probably needed extra skin to allow for such a wide gape. And then when the mouth is closed, the extra skin may have drooped over their teeth like jowls on a dog. So the same thing might have been true for dinosaurs, or maybe it wasn't. I really don't know. I'm hoping that we see this hypothesis published in a peer-reviewed journal so we can see what other people might think about it a little bit. But so far, it was just kind of an aside or a little presentation made at the Society for Vertebrate Paleontology, so there hasn't been too much talk about it yet. So hopefully that helps answer the question. I wasn't too satisfied with what I found, but I think it was interesting that everybody assumes Smilodon had teeth sticking out of its mouth, just like they assumed dinosaurs did, but in both cases there are some scientists that think they were covered by lips. So we'll see. We've mentioned before that T-Rex probably didn't have a super loud whale, lion, crazy sound roar like they put together for Jurassic Park, and we've also said that they probably sounded more like birds, but what do birds sound like? According to a new article in the International Journal of Organic Evolution by Tobias Reed and others, most birds vocalize with an open beak, but there is a large group that also vocalize with a closed beak and an inflating cavity. If you don't know what an inflating cavity is, you can think of that big vocal sac under a frog's head that puffs out and goes back in. It's kind of similar. It, it looks a little bit similar on their neck, but it probably operates a little bit differently. The interesting thing that they found was that among birds that do closed mouth vocalizations, it doesn't seem to be a shared evolutionary trait but instead it looks like it evolved independently within different bird groups at least 16 times. The physics of inflating a small balloon, like if you imagine one of those party balloons, is pretty difficult, which is probably why no modern birds smaller than a dove have inflating cavities. It's only found in larger birds. Since many large-bodied birds do have inflating cavities that they use for their closed mouth vocalizations, the researchers believe that at least some of the dinosaurs also evolved the ability to coo, hoot, boom, or bellow. One cool thing about closed mouth vocalizations is that they can make much deeper sounds than open mouth sounds. If you haven't ever seen an alligator bellow, it's something kind of like a growl. When they do it in shallow water, you can actually see the water vibrate above it, kind of like it's a living subwoofer, and it looks really intimidating. So... The inflating cavities take advantage of resonance to amplify the deeper sounds and muffle the higher pitch sounds. And the researchers do point out that there are a few other ways to make deep sounds, and birds make all types of complex sounds in different ways, but closed mouth vocalizations allow for booming and some other unique things. On top of that, 
crocodilians can also hiss, so there are a lot of possibilities about how dinosaurs may have sounded. But based on modern tetrapods, the researchers also think dinosaurs may have used closed mouth vocalization for display and open mouth vocalization for other types of communication. Unfortunately, inflating cavities don't fossilize, so it's hard to tell exactly what they sounded like, but it does appear likely that dinosaurs probably made noises with both their mouth open and closed. And I personally really like the idea of a T-Rex or a Spinosaurus bellowing like an alligator or booming or even cooing would be pretty cool. So it's nice to know that it's a possibility. And with all the different sounds that birds can make, it makes a lot of sense to look to birds to figure out what dinosaurs probably sounded like rather than just looking at other large, intimidating animals. In Reading, Pennsylvania, an animatronic Spinosaurus was vandalized. According to the Reading Eagle, at about 1.30 in the morning, three vandals climbed onto it, broke its sail, pulled out six of its teeth, and tore off the tips of its finger and tail. They were caught on video, but they can't be identified from the tape. The dinosaur is one of two motion-activated displays outside the Reading Public Museum, and they're there to advertise the Dinosaurs Around the World Passport to Pangaea exhibit. The director of the museum, John Graydon, said, quote, It is really embarrassing for the community, and with the exception of the people who did this, the large majority of the community shares that embarrassment, end quote. So they started a GoFundMe page that has raised at least one-third of its $10,000 goal so far. And it's nice to see that so many people in the community were looking for ways to support the museum. And everyone was so upset with this stupid vandalism. Because even though big animatronic dinosaurs may look really tough, they are kind of made out of usually latex and foam and wires. So they're not particularly durable and climbing on them is not cool. Unless they're meant to be climbed on. Like occasionally there's one with like a little saddle on it that you can sit on. But not the case this time. Thanks to Chris for sharing a video with us on Facebook. It shows how Arthur Hayward, who worked at the Natural History Museum in London, also made dinosaur models for movies back in the 1960s. First he takes a simple wire structure and wraps it in plaster and then clay to get the outer shape. After adding details to the clay, he makes a mold of the clay model, then he puts a replica articulated skeleton into the mold and pours latex in the mold around the skeleton. I was actually surprised to see that they use such a realistic skeleton inside the replica. I really thought it would have just been a few articulated points like around the jaws, legs, and maybe the tail, but it was cool to see that they put a full complete skeleton, at least in some of them. The clip ends with a gloriously goofy looking stop motion sequence of a sauropod trashing a bus using a tree as a club. And it definitely did not stand the test of time, but it's cool to see how they used to do the animations that you see every once in a while on TV or in these old movies of dinosaurs and stop motion. And I was also happy to see that they were employing an actual expert in dinosaurs from the time to do their models because it would be just as easy to just make something up. And our last story of the news, there's a new dinosaur museum that opened up in Canyon City in Colorado. It's named the Royal Gorge Dinosaur Experience, and it has 27 full-scale dinosaur casts and 16 full-scale animatronic dinosaur replicas. They also have an outdoor ropes course, a paleo lab, a theater, and a cafe. And we love our dinosaur museum, so we're always happy to see stuff like this. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview at our second stop on our epic dinosaur road trip, the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Drumheller, Alberta, Canada. We are joined this week by Cameron White, Head of Gallery Experience at the Royal Tyrell Museum. Hello. We saw on the website, it looks like it was like a security something or other. Yeah, I am, I'm actually the security supervisor. Mm-hmm. So, And then I supervise the Gallery Experience Officer team, which are basically a mixture of public safety and security and interpretation. Cool. Uh, paleontological interpreters, they are. So That sounds cool. Sorry, what does that mean, paleontological interpreters? They basically interpret dinosaurs. Oh, <laughs> simple enough. Dinosaurs and all aspects of ancient life. Cool. So, like, that's with the aim of making realistic exhibitions and stuff like that, or um, even just on a research kind of level? Not so much research level. It's more of a customer experience level. Okay. So it's to basically interact with the public. They, they carry around these uh, satchels that they carry um, various fossils or casts of specimens so that people can have some hands-on experience with them. They also have an iPad, which is we have direct links to uh, paleo you know, information and stuff mm-hmm. like that that can kind of help find quick information to enhance the visitor's experience. Cool. So I'm just going to do a quick intro about the museum, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on anything. So the Royal Terrell Museum opened in 1985 in southern Alberta and has become one of the largest and most influential dinosaur museums in the world, has a collection of over 100,000 fossils and 47,000 square feet or 4,400 square meters of exhibition space. Correct. Cool. There's a lot of space. A lot of space. (laughs) And we fill it up nicely. We just came from the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum, and they have a couple specimens that are on loan from this museum. Mm -hmm. Do you guys loan out a lot of fossils? Yeah, we loan out fossils all over the world. Various uh, other museums, you know, want stuff for their displays or just for research purposes, those types of things. So, yes, we do send stuff all over the world. Uh, We do also get things from other museums as well for our museum because so many of the specimens are kind of directly related to our area that we Mm -hmm. find around here because, you know, throughout the world, you only find certain specimens in certain areas. So Cool. (laughs) One kind of funny note. We heard there was a yarn bombing. Yes. On your <laughs> triceratops, or not triceratops. Triceratops. Yeah. 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 The local yarn club uh, went around and had some fun and put some uh, sweaters on numerous dinosaurs around the museum <laughs> and throughout the Drumheller town. So there's a, there were a bunch on for the basically the spring. Uh, I think it was a good, about a month they were up and stuff like that. <laughs> wow. A lot of us thought it was a pretty humorous thing, and so yeah. some people didn't really care for it. But, you know, Aww. like any of those things, it's, it's all meant in good fun. <laughs> At first, when I heard about it, I thought they had put them on, like, the fossil exhibits. And I was like, well, that could be kind of annoying if you're trying to see it. But then we found out it was on 
reproductions, then it's like, ah, oh, it's all yeah, it's just then. the the fleshed out, you know, yeah. um, our interpretation of dinosaur or, yeah. or local interpretations that are uh, not so scientific, but yeah. they're there and they looked really cool. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder how they fit them or how they sized it. <laughs> yeah, oh, measurements and yarn stretches. That's, that's true. <laughs> that's a good point. As far as other exhibits go, how often do you update them? Are they like constantly evolving, or is it yes, definitely? Um, we're always uh, trying to update. We always do something every year, at least. Hmm. This past year, it was a really big one. The foundations exhibit uh, is basically the whole front entrance way of the galleries, hmm. and it's pretty much in an intro to paleontology. Oh. So right to the development of the earth, to first evolution, up to our modern techniques that we use for excavating and preparing fossils. That sounds like a good exhibit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How long is that up? Well, it just uh, opened in May. Oh, nice. So it will be pretty much a permanent gallery for the next few years. So, And then there are a lot of reproductions as well as you know, actual fossils on mm-hmm. display. Do you have to update or do the reproductions get updated? Or do they usually just kind of get taken out when you do a new exhibit and then updated in that so way? So reproductions as like casts of the originals? Like or, the ones you have out front. Or, or like replicas? fleshed out replicas. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Those guys, like, uh, for example, the ones out front, we just had repainted over this winter. Hmm. So we'll, we'll update them as far as, you know, keeping them look good for the public. And there was actually a little bit of updating that did come on that sculpt that was out front. They actually changed the nasal horn. Oh. Uh, it's a pachyrhinosaurus, mm-hmm. so a type of ceratopsian. So there's a, they decided that they didn't like the way that the na- nasal structure went before, so they kind of updated that for it. So there cool. is updating that can come with those as well. Oh, that's great. Is that done in-house, or do you send um, it out somewhere? No, uh, the individual that actually made the sculptures, his name's Brian Cooley, we send them out to his shop, and he does all the, the work. So Cool. Is that a local one, or does it, do they have to go a ways? Yeah, they, they go. I'm, I'm actually not exactly sure where his shop is based out of, um, but it is in Alberta. So. Okay. That could be really far or really close. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But uh, I'm pretty sure it's Calgary it's or Edmonton, close. something like that. So. Yeah, when we were at the Philip J. Curry Museum, we asked them, they were talking about education programs, and we said, does anybody else come other than Grand Prairie? And they said, well, north of Edmonton, there isn't much other than Grand Prairie. It's yeah. pretty much all down south. So, And that's the same with our visitation. You know, we, we get people from, our main visitors come from Calgary and Edmonton areas, mm-hmm. uh, but we do get people from all over the world and all over, you know, central Alberta is our main focus. But yeah, we get people from BC, Saskatchewan, all across Canada. Cool. So how did you end up working here? I started here in a position that was very much like the gallery experience officer. We used to be called just gallery interpreters, and we kind of changed it to make it more of a security and interpretation base so that our security guards were able to answer questions but still perform security duties. We are the first responders for any first aid, hmm. any evacuation procedure stuff. We do all that. So myself, I started here doing that. And after a couple of years, the coordinator went on to a different position. So I applied for her position and got it. Uh, and then I moved into the head of security position eight years ago. So where I supervise basically all the public safety and security that takes place in the galleries while we're open to the public. We also do security for the overnight programs during the off season so that's where kids actually come here and sleep underneath the dinosaurs (laughs) so uh that's one thing that's another element that we cover um i'm involved with tons of stuff like ohs committee all the fire procedures and and emergency procedures also i supervise shipping and receiving here as well it makes sense to combine the security and the exhibition discussions now that you mention it that's a really good idea yeah, and all, the whole point is for the customer's experience. Mm-hmm. So we just want the visitors that come to the Tyrol to have the best experience they possibly can. I'm sure the kids love the sleepovers. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty amazing program. Yeah, while we're on that subject, you guys have quite a few science camps for different age groups and things like that. And I saw some of them are out in the Badlands. But are any of them around here other than the sleepover type thing? Uh, yeah. During the summer uh, months, we do our science camp, which is, you know, it's, it's a fun kind of camp where they do a lot of camp type things. But there is also a focus on the science part of it and the paleontological part of it, especially. 
So, you know, they do, they go look at fossils, they do uh, all sorts of fun stuff mm-hmm. where they even do like uh, microfossil sorting, stuff that actually is real paleontology. And it's not just all like pre-set up stuff. So they're actually contributing to the science that we do here at the museum as well. That's great. Better than the like, they cover up the casts of eggs and they say, be a paleontologist, brush off the eggs. Yeah. But you have family programs too. Is that the same kind of thing? Um, there is a family camp that we do. Uh, most of the camps themselves are strictly different age groups. So they'll have like a junior and senior camp where uh, I don't know the exact age groups for those things off the top of my head, but they fill up really quick. I know that <laughs> uh, they pretty much are almost booked solid, you know, six to seven months in advance. Wow. wow. Yeah, I glanced at it yesterday and I saw they all said sold out on them. I was like, yeah. I guess so. It's an easy way to get your kids into science and yep. get them on oh, the definitely. House. <laughs> Especially for those science keeners, that's something a little different. So Yeah. Has anyone in any of the camps found like any big discovery? Um, I don't know off the top of my head. There's lots of lots of things they have found through helping out and there's all especially when you're searching for microfossils. You know, a lot of times the way that works is they get these large bags that are just full of like fossil matrix which is you know dirt mm-hmm. and then they're sifting it through um screen washing processes and stuff almost like kind of gold panning to mm-hmm. a degree so i read you have speaker series and uh, a culture week an alberta culture weekend so mm-hmm. what exactly is that and but it's not going on right now it's not not right now the speaker series is something that we do in the, the off season where uh we have speakers paleontologists sometimes students various people in the paleontological community that come to the museum and uh, do a presentation in our auditorium Mm -hmm. and it's free and open to the public and uh, it's just an opportunity to kind of see what's going on in the science world cool is it off season because otherwise the paleontologists are busy digging (laughs) a little bit of that but a lot of it is we are so busy during the summer Mm -hmm. and you know we in our auditorium we have auditorium programming or we have just uh videos that play and stuff like that it would be a little bit harder to coordinate which is the amount of people that come through here because our visitation numbers are extremely high during the summer Hmm. how high during the summer we do well for example i know we had over fifteen thousand people this last long weekend so wow That might be, is that's that the th- busiest weekend since that's, that was no. the Canada Day? Weekend. Canada Day is pretty busy, but the August long weekend definitely is always our busiest. Yeah. Okay. What's the long weekend in August? Usually it's the first week of August. Okay. Do you have any regular paleontologists who come to speak? Well, a lot of times our paleontological staff will speak, or there will be some people that are like post-ops and stuff like that that are working with us will, will speak. There, you know, every year there definitely is some guys that bring new material and stuff throughout the years. So there are returning people for sure. <laughs> and then there's also a satellite exhibit at Dinosaur Provincial Park called the Royal Terrell Field Station. I yes. don't know how familiar with that you are, but yeah, could the, you tell us um, yeah, the field station in Dinosaur Provincial Park uh, is kind of a sister museum to us. And it's basically a smaller version of what we are here. So it's it's an opportunity for people to go through a museum and talk to interpreters. And they have a similar system where they do a lot of educational programming and stuff like that. Uh, take people out into their mass badlands compared to what we have here. So, um, But yeah, it's uh, a really, really interesting and fun experience as well. Cool. And then aside from camps... You guys also have a dig experience. Is that kind of the same type of thing where you have kids go out and help sift through fossils and stuff like that? Yeah, basically it's the dig experience is more of a a simulated dig site. Hmm. So it's kind of the setup thing. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so we do those, but it's we basically cover the fossils in a a plaster casting Hmm. and they chip through it. And um, it's not just like brush and sand away. It's, it's, you know, they actually are using proper paleontological tools and working like the, you know, the technicians would actually work here at the museum. That's That's cool. Yeah. You also have like a few hikes around here. Are there bones sticking out of the ground that you can see on the hikes? Or Yeah, there are some. Uh, 
some dinosaur bones in situ that they will see on their hikes and stuff like that. There's the Seven Wonders of the Badlands, which isn't so much about the fossil aspects, but it's more just uh, the other things in the Badlands that talk a lot about the type of sediment throughout the valley, um, cactus and all, all those kinds <laughs> of things, with a bit of focus on the paleontological finds as well. Dinosite is more of a hike that you go out and kind of do a bit of a prospecting aspect and stuff like that. So looking at uh, microfossil sites and stuff like that. So how many paleontologists currently work with Royal Thorell? I'm pretty sure there's nine that work here. Wow. <laughs> so there might be eight with a postdoc. So we do have a very sufficient <laughs> uh, yeah. curators, curatorial staff here at the museum. So Do they kind of focus on stuff that would be nearby and... Or is it just whatever fossils we can get? No, they all have like special uh, things that they focus on. I know Dave Eberth focuses on geology, so a lot on like where fossils are found, the different um, localities throughout the world, and timelines and stuff. I know that Dennis Brayman uh, focuses on palynology, which is the study of like fossilized spores and Mm -hmm. small plants and stuff like that. Francois Therrien is focuses mostly on uh, theropod dinosaurs, the meat-eating dinosaurs. Cool. So that they all have different jobs here at the museum. That's cool. Yeah, because you guys cover a lot more than just dinosaurs, right? There's... Yeah, all aspects of ancient life. <laughs> How far back do you know, like, roughly what the timeline is within? Is it, like, Devonian, or does it go... All aspects basically starts with the beginning of life okay. on Earth. So cool. Anything that can fossilize yeah. counts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we definitely focus more on the Cretaceous period okay. here at the Tyrol because that's mostly what we find around central Alberta. Hmm. So late Cretaceous. Cool. And there's a lab here, right? Yep. Yeah, we have a full uh, lab that uh, has, I, I'm not quite sure currently how many technicians we have on staff. I'm pretty sure it's probably around... 10 to 12 but yeah they a lot of them are summer students and stuff that come to work here with their full-time staff they spend a lot of their time during the summer actually in the field doing a lot of the actual prep work and and uh, excavating the fossils during the winter um, months they spend a lot of time working on those fossils and getting them ready for research or for display those types of things cool yeah are there any other exhibits that are particularly cool other than that new one up front the entire museum you like the whole thing (laughs) i like the whole thing it's like picking a favorite kid (laughs) yeah how about a favorite dinosaur my favorite dinosaur is not even a dinosaur from the drumheller or central alberta area uh the allosaurus is my favorite yeah it's a good one uh i like uh i like it just it's a jurassic dinosaur that i find it just to be kind of a perfect killing machine it just Mm -hmm. is like yeah it's, I just have always liked it since I was a kid, and I still like it as an adult. <laughs> yeah, we have a replica of an Allosaurus hand mm-hmm. on our desk. <laughs> and that's, I love looking at the claws and then imagining like the keratin sheath that would have gone over it, yeah. so it would have been even bigger. It's crazy. Have you been to Dinosaur National Monument in Colorado? No, I haven't. <laughs> it's a good spot. It's far and yeah. in the middle of nowhere, but. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I have one last question, yes. and it might be completely wrong, but I think I read that there's a dinosaur that you can go inside of, like you can climb or yeah, something? Yeah, the world's largest dinosaur, uh, one of our town exhibits. Okay. Um, so it's it's our information tourist building that's uh, located downtown. Okay. It's, yeah, kind of right along the river. If you drove through town, you can't miss it. I think we saw it. It looks like a big like Godzilla it's, style. Yeah, <laughs> looks like it's a giant <laughs> T-Rex, and you go into the visitor center, and yeah, sure enough, you can crawl up inside it. It's, it's neat, because it, when you're in like the stomach area, it's supposed to look like you're in its stomach, and then as you make your way to the mouth, then it's a beautiful view of Drumheller from the mouth of a uh, Absorbently T-rex. large T-Rex. <laughs> Air quotes T-Rex. <laughs> Tiny arm quote T-Rex. Yeah. <laughs> cool. We'll, we'll have to go there after. Yeah, yeah. it's very, very cool. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, of course, I was more than happy to meet with you guys. Again, we want to give a big thank you to Cameron for talking to us. We really enjoyed the Royal Tyrell Museum. There was a lot of cool stuff to see. Our favorite thing was Black Beauty the big T-Rex that's mounted in a death pose. And we have a video that shows a little bit of what we saw there and our experience driving to our second stop on the road trip on our YouTube channel. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Iguanodon, which was a request from Cole via Patreon and Garrett via Facebook. So thanks, guys. The name means iguana tooth, and it was an ornithopod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Belgium and maybe other parts of Europe, too. Other dinosaurs in the area include predators, Euteranus, Baryonyx, and Neovenator, and other herbivores such as Hypsilophodon and Montellosaurus, the armored herbivore Polycanthus and Pelorosaurus sauropod. Iguanodon was named in 1825 by Gideon Mantell, an English geologist, and it was the second dinosaur named after Megalosaurus, which we discussed back in episode 47, and it's one of the three dinosaurs to define dinosauria. The other genera used to define dinosauria was Hyleosaurus. There was tension between Mantell and Richard Owen, a scientist and the man who named Dinosauria, who was also a creationist and opposed the transmutationism idea of evolution. When Owen described Dinosauria, he said that they were advanced and mammal-like with characteristics that God gave them and could not have transmuted from reptiles to mammal-like animals. So transmutation was the theory before Darwin's theory of evolution. Mantell and Owen had a rivalry, and some historians think that Owen took a lot of credit for Mantell's work, the story of how Iguanodon was discovered was that Marianne, Gideon Mantell's wife, found the teeth in 1822 in Sussex, England, while her husband was visiting a patient. But Mantell didn't take his wife with him when he was visiting patients, and in 1851 he admitted that he had been the one to find the teeth. Mantell first found large fossils at a quarry in Whiteman's Green in 1820, but he thought that they belonged to a giant crocodile. In his notebooks, he mentioned in 1821 that he found herbivore's teeth and thought it might belong to a reptile. He presented these teeth to the Royal Society of London in 1822, but they thought it was just fish teeth or rhinoceros teeth. And this happened again in 1823 when Charles Lyell showed the same teeth to Georges Cuvier, a French naturalist. William Buckwin was one of the members of the Geological Society of London to say that the teeth belonged to a fish or rhino, too. And Cuvier was known for correctly identifying pterodactylus as a flying reptile. But Cuvier thought the teeth were of a rhino, but then the next day he had his doubts. But by then, Lyle had told Mantell about Cuvier's first thoughts on the teeth, so Mantell put them to the side for a while. And then William Buckland described Megalosaurus in 1824 and was invited to see Mantell's collection. He thought it was a dinosaur, though not an herbivore. So Mantell sent some teeth again to Cuvier, who said in June 1824 that they were a reptilian, possibly of a giant herbivores, admitting to his mistake in 1823. Cuvier wrote a public retraction that he now thought the teeth were reptilian, not mammalian, and Mantle's discovery became widely accepted. In September of 1824, Mantle went to the Royal College of Surgeons but couldn't find any similar teeth. Then Samuel Stutchbury, an assistant curator, saw that they looked like a larger version of iguana teeth that he had recently worked on. Because of this, Mantell named the animal Iguanodon. He was going to call it Iguanosaurus, but his friend William Daniel Coneybear said that the name was more applicable to an iguana, so a better name would be Iguanoids, meaning iguana-like, or Iguanodon. Mantell wrote a letter about Iguanodon to the Portsmouth Philosophical Society in December 1824, and the Hampshire Telegraph published about it, but then misspelled the name. They said it was Iguana with an A, Don, instead of Iguano with an O, Don. Mantell published his findings formally in February of 1825 and presented the paper to the Royal Society of London. He didn't give it a species name, but in 1829, Frederick Hull named it Iguanodon Anglicum, which later became Anglicus. And the name 
Anglicum was changed to Anglicus for correct grammar. After Stutchbury recognized that the tooth looked like a giant iguana tooth, Mantell estimated the size of the body of Iguanodon by multiplying how many times bigger its tooth was compared to an iguana's tooth. So he guessed it was 59 feet or 18 meters long, bigger than Megalosaurus, though that's not actually true. That's pretty funny. I guess that's relevant if you think that the dinosaur was just a huge iguana. Yeah. So Iguanodon weighed about 3.4 tons, and it was actually about 33 feet or 10 meters long as an adult. Some may have been as long as 43 feet or 13 meters, though. There's only two valid species of Iguanodon currently. There's Bernicertensis, described by George Albert Boulanger in 1881, and Galvensis, described in 2015 and based on fossils found in Spain. The original type species was Iguanodon anglicus, but that was only based on a single tooth, and only partial remains have been found. So in 2000, the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature changed the neotype to Iguanodon bernicertensis, and the original Iguanodon tooth is at the National Museum of New Zealand in Wellington, but it's not on display. And this museum got it after Walter Mantell, Gideon Mantell's son, moved there when his father died, and he inherited the fossil collection. Iguanodon bernicertensis is the neotype, so that means it replaces Iguanodon anglicus as the type species, and newly found Iguanodon fossils are compared to this neotype. So the clad Iguanodontia has been a wastebasket taxon for ornithopods that are neither hypsilophodontids or hadrosaurids, and well-known Iguanodontia include Dryosaurus, Camptosaurus, Aranosaurus, and Hadrosaurus. What we know about Iguanodon has changed significantly since 1825, based on new finds. And because there were only fragments of dinosaurs found in the beginning, there's a lot of assumptions that were based on current living creatures. So Mantell thought that Iguanodon had a horn on its nose, instead of a thumb spike, based on it being similar to a horn of a South American iguana. They also thought it had a kangaroo-like stance. So Iggy, who is a famous Iguanodon replica, is in the kangaroo pose, which at the time was thought to be accurate when they mounted it. But world wars and the Great Depression meant Iguanodon wasn't really studied in the early 1900s. There was a dinosaur renaissance that started in 1969 with Deinonychus, and soon after David B. Norman analyzed how Iguanodon ate and other aspects of Iguanodon, and then it became a well-known dinosaur. In 1834, in an excavation of a quarry in Maidstone, a more complete iguanodon specimen was found, other than the tooth that Mantell had found. However, it was still only a partial skeleton, and Mantell identified it as iguanodon based on its teeth. And this skeleton was used in the first iguanodon reconstructions, but it was not complete, and again, Mantell thought the horn went on the nose. The skeleton, known as the Maidstone Skeleton, is preserved in a slab and on display at the Natural History Museum in London. It's also nicknamed Gideon Mantell's Mantle Piece, <laughs> and its replica is nicknamed Iggy. Benstig concluded that it was an iguanodon and wrote in his notebook along with sketches, quote, The remains of the iguanodon were discovered by one of the workmen blasting the layer with gunpowder, the bore being placed in the middle of a rise or mound in the stone, end quote. Oh, so they did some quarry blasting, and Benstead also wrote, quote, The separation of the mass was so complete that some parts were thrown by the force of the powder to a considerable distance, and a month had elapsed before I had fitted the fragments together in their relative places, end quote. So again, this Maidstone skeleton is what helped Gideon Mantell identify his dinosaur iguanodon. And the borough of Maidstone added iguanodon to their coat of arms in 1949. Hmm. And so that specimen is linked to Iguanodon mantelli, a species that Christian Eric Hermann von May named in 1832 to replace Iguanodon anglicus, but it was found in a different formation from Iguanodon anglicus. And because it's from a different formation, it was eventually reclassified as Mantellosaurus in 2012. In May 2014, the Maidstone Museum got back the original case of Iggy the Iguanodon, and it's on display in the Kent Earth Heritage Gallery. In 1878 in Bernisart, Belgium, the largest iguanodon to date was found. So what happened was two mine workers, Jules Couture and Alphonse Blanchard, accidentally hit a skeleton that they thought was petrified wood. They excavated the skeletons, and in 1882, Louis Dolo reconstructed them. They found 38 iguanodon individuals, most of them adults, a new species, Iguanodon bernisartensis. The one specimen was called Iguanodon mantelli and is now known as Dolodon bampingai. 
So Louis Dola was a Belgian paleontologist. And Iguanodon bernisartensis was named for Bernisart, where the coal mine, where the 38-plus Iguanodon specimens were found. And it's not clear why there were so many Iguanodons found in those coal mines. But complete Bernisart specimens showed Dola that the spikes were not on Iguanodon's nose, but instead on its thumbs. And so the holotype was one of the first dinosaur skeletons put on display. They used adjustable ropes attached to scaffolding to help give it a lifelike pose, and they put it on display in 1883 and then moved it in 1891 to the Royal Museum of Natural History. I wonder what their version of a lifelike pose was. Kangaroo pose, I think. Does that mean like literally like it's squatting on its feet, like it's about to hop away? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> I saw the one in the Crystal Palace kind of looks like that, but it's also kind of like laying down. Maybe that one was more iguana-like. Yeah, could be. That was earlier. So 19 iguanodons are in the basement of the Royal Museum of Natural History, but nine are on display still. And you can also see a replica at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History and the Sedgwick Museum in Cambridge. And the iguanodon replica at Cambridge's Sedgwick Museum is nicknamed Iggy. At the time, there was no standardized ways to preserve fossils, so they often had, quote, pyrite disease, which is when crystalline pyrite in the bones are oxidized to iron sulfate. To help preserve the iguanodon finds, they covered the fossils in wet clay, sealed them with paper and plaster, and then when they were transported, preserved them with boiling gelatine and an oil of cloves, then removed the visible pyrite and hardened them with hide glue and repaired damages with paper mache. But this accidentally caused more damage. The museum in Brussels worked to restore the fossils in 1935-36 to using alcohol, arsenic, and shellac. And then the fossils were worked on again in 2003-2007 to using polyvinyl acetate and cyanoacrylate and epoxy glues. Dallow showed that Owen's interpretation of iguanodon was incorrect, and he modeled the skeletal mounts after cassowaries and wallabies and moved the spikes to the thumbs. And that wasn't completely correct, but these were some of the first complete dinosaur specimens. He gave it a tripod tail, for example, which in real life would have had to have been broken to bend that way. Oof. Maybe that's the kangaroo pose, because they do that with their tail too, right? I think so, yeah. It's part of it. The coal mine where Iguanodon was found has been abandoned from scientific studies since 1921, which is too bad. One Iguanodon found had a fractured hip bone, and two others had osteoarthritis. Iguanodon probably was not a herding animal. They may have traveled in small groups, though Iguanodon findings don't have many hatchlings or juveniles, which is why scientists think it might not have been a herding animal. Because Iguanodon was an early named dinosaur, a lot of species have been assigned to it over the years, though not quite as many as Megalosaurus. There's still lots of debate over what is Iguanodon and what are species of Iguanodon. Other quote-unquote Iguanodons were from four other continents. Reassigned species include Iguanodon hogai, now Owenodon, Iguanodon albinus, now Albasaurus albinus, Iguanodon exogerarum, now Ponerostius, Iguanodon prestwichai, now Camptosaurus or Cumnoria, Iguanodon dasoni, now Baralium, and Iguanodon phytoni, now Hypsilosphinus. Yeah, and a lot of things that used to be called Iguanodonts or like Iguanodonomorphs or whatever, now are, they're just lumping into hadrosaurs. But for a while it seemed like Iguanodon was getting its whole own little world of the dinosaur family tree, but it's been getting pared down more lately. Yeah, now that we keep discovering more things. There's also dubious species, and a lot of other species that are considered synonyms. So Iguanodon was large and tall, but had narrow skulls with toothless beaks that were probably covered in keratin, and teeth similar to an iguana's, but they were bigger. And they only had one replacement tooth at a time for each tooth, which was unlike hadrosaurids. Yeah, so their beak was toothless, but then they had the molars that were for chewing, I guess. Yeah. So they could shear vegetation, which meant that they could bite tough plant matter and eat tough vegetation. And they probably, as Garrett said, they had some kind of cheek structure to keep food in their mouth. And the beak was horny and toothless. It was probably a cropping beak to bite off twigs. Even though it could eat tough plant matter, we're not sure exactly what it ate. Its size meant that it could eat low-lying plants, and plants up to 16 and a half feet or 5 meters high, but Iguanodon is considered to be a medium to large herbivore for its habitat. Because Iguanodon could find food in both high and low places, it had an advantage and could spread out in wider areas. Also, it was bipedal, or when it was being bipedal anyway, it was easier to spot predators. Dolo thought Iguanodon had a tongue similar to a giraffe's, 
prehensile for <laughs> gathering food. But that theory has since been rejected. That'd be a funny combination with a beak. <laughs> yeah. Well, he might have thought that because it had a broken lower jaw, one of the ones he was looking at. Hmm. More fossils, though, show that Iguanodon had a muscular non-prehensile tongue and it moved food within its mouth. Again, the thumbs had spikes. And it's not clear, though, what the thumb spikes were used for. May have been for defense or foraging for food. One person thought that the thumb spike had a venom gland, but the spike was not hollow, so this theory hasn't been accepted. The thumb spike may have helped them break open seeds and fruits or be used as a weapon, too. These spikes were between two to six inches long. The fifth digit was flexible and nearly prehensile, for example, the way a chameleon's tail can curve around a branch, so they probably could reach hard to get parts of plants. The three middle fingers were close together and were almost like one big finger. They were inflexible, but it made it easier for it to walk on all fours when it wanted, which is how it could be a low browser. So Iguanodon was this herbivore that could shift from bipedal to quadrupedal, and it had strong legs, but it was not a good runner. It had three toes. It was probably quadrupedal most of the time, and then just bipedal for high browsing. Juvenile Iguanodons had shorter arms than adults about 60% of the hind limb length versus 70% for adults. So as they aged, they became more quadrupedal. They had long arms, 75% the length of their legs, with inflexible hands. And again, that's to bear weight when they're quadrupedal. And because they had long arms, that would make them easy to fully extend and walk on all fours. But they could also bend their elbows to get closer to vegetation on the ground. In 1849, Mantell himself realized that Iguanodon had more slender forearms than previously thought and was not as heavy. But he died in 1852 and could not weigh in on Richard Owen's Crystal Palace dinosaur sculptures. Iguanodon had thick back legs but could not gallop. The max speed is estimated to be 14.9 miles per hour or 25 kilometers per hour. They could run for short distances, probably away from predators. Footprints had been found on the Isle of Wight in England. It wasn't clear they were Iguanodon footprints at first. Samuel Beckwell said in 1854 they looked like bird tracks. But then an Iguanodon hind leg was found nearby in 1857, and it had three-toed feet, which showed the three-toed footprints could be Iguanodon. So there's no direct evidence, but these tracks are thought to be Iguanodon. I love things like that, where they thought it was a bird and it turned out to be a dinosaur. And then later on, it was like, dinosaurs aren't birds. That's crazy. Yeah. Or birds aren't dinosaurs. And then a <laughs> hundred and something years later, people start to actually accept it. <laughs> All comes full circle. Yeah. Iguanodon had a stiff tail, which would help it balance. And again, it was originally depicted to be bipedal with its tail dragging on the ground like a tripod or a third leg. But then David Norman re-examined Iguanodon and concluded that it was not a tripod because its tail was stiff with ossified tendons. And ossified tendons are tendons that have turned to bone during an animal's lifetime. Iguanodon's tail is now always depicted as straight and high off the ground. Tendons can bend, so an embryo Iguanodon had tendons supporting their tail so the tail could curl around the body and it could fit into a smaller sized egg. Because of this, when they first hatched, they probably had limp droopy tails, but maybe only for a few days or weeks. In December of 2011, a bone thought to belong to the tail vertebrae of an iguanodon was found in a garden in Sunderland, UK. However, the rocks in that area that it was found are older than dinosaurs, so curators at the Sunderland Museum think the bone was lost or dropped by someone there at some point or got there by glacial transport. Hmm. Because of Richard Owen, dinosaurs were seen as these large animals with scales and lots of teeth, which Owen had translated into the Crystal Palace sculptures. And Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, who sculpted the dinosaurs, had a dinner party inside the standing Iguanodon sculpture before it was finished. Or, so the story goes, he actually had the party in the mold used to cast the sculpture. And it was a publicity stunt to celebrate the sculptures. And the dinner was on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1853, and lasted until after midnight. They built a stage in order to deliver the courses which included mock turtle soup, cod and oyster sauce, pheasant, woodcock and snipe, and nougat a la chantilly. There were 21 guests at the dinner party, including Richard Owen, and they also ate ham and drank wine and started singing, The jolly old beast is not deceased, there's life in him again. Yeah, we talked about that earlier in another episode. It was a pretty funny sounding group of people. Yeah, it sounded like a good night for them. So other guests at the dinner party included Edward Forbes, John Good, and Joseph Prestwich. And they also ate raised pigeon pie, roast turkey, boiled chicken, and celery sauce, and a whole bunch of other courses. 
The newspapers the next day reported on the event, and Hawkins apparently said, quote, The roaring chorus was so fierce and enthusiastic as almost to lead to the belief that the herd of iguanodons were bellowing, <laughs> end quote. Richard Owen sat at the head of the table inside the iguanodon's head and gave a speech about how accurate the sculpture was. <laughs> In 1855, funding was cut to create more dinosaur sculptures, and the Iguanodon was one of three at the Crystal Palace. And in media, Iguanodon appears in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 story, The Lost World, and they roam in herds in South America. There's also an extra-large Iguanodon that walks around Paris in Nicholas Flammarion's The World Before Man, published in 1886. And there's an Iguanodon stampede in Robert Bacher's Raptor Red. In 1989... The CB3 main belt asteroid was named 9941 Iguanodon hmm. and was found on February 4th of 1989 inside a rocky belt between Mars and Jupiter. You can also see Iguanodon in the Disney movie Dinosaur, that is Aladar, the main character. And Iguanodon also inspired Godzilla, along with Tyrannosaurus and Stegosaurus. And Iguanodon has been featured in many Land Before Time movies. And you can also see it in the 1999 Walking with Dinosaurs documentary. Iguanodon is part of the suborder Ornithopoda, which contains bipedal herbivores with beaks and bird-like feet. And the family Iguanodontidae contains large bipedal herbivores with long toes and thumb spikes. And it also includes dinosaurs such as Aranosaurus and Probactrosaurus. And our fun fact of the day is, despite some other dinosaur groups not doing so well, ornithopods, mostly hadrosauroids, got super successful in the late Cretaceous. To put some figures around it, 40% of known ornithopod species are from just the last 30 million years of the Mesozoic. Or to put it another way, 40% of ornithopods are from less than the last 20% of the reign of dinosaurs. They were really exploding in diversity right there at the end of the Cretaceous. And that does it for this episode of I Know Dino. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us by going to patreon.com slash inodino. We have lots of great perks that you can get at different tiers, and you can get an ad-free version too. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Good day.